Goodness. Good morning, everyone. It is Tuesday on this wonderful work week. And today we have a very special guest that we're bringing forth to you. Um, so we can go ahead and pick his brain and get all that good info, all the meat and potatoes of all the great stuff that he's going to share today. So with us this morning, we have Mr. Jeffrey Goodman, who is a planning consultant with Granicus. Um, areas of focus are, you know, planning, data processes, data analysis, um, writing ordinances, basically all things planning. So can you imagine the wealth of knowledge that we're going to bring to you today? So much pressure. Oh, oh, and let me not forget, he's coming to us live from New Orleans, which is one of the places that I'd love to visit. One day we had a nice little chat about some of the things that draws to or New Orleans. So um, with that, let's get going. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. If you could tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeff. Sure. So I'm currently in New Orleans. I actually grew up in California, sort of bounced around a little bit, briefly lived in South America. You know, it's not important. Uh, but I am a trained urban planner. Uh, I work uh, at this point almost exclusively around issues of short-term rentals and vacation rental regulation and enforcement. Uh, you know, I've been doing that for, I would say, five or six or seven years now. Uh, part of that comes from living in New Orleans. You know, this is a tourism-based uh, economy here, uh, but it's also a place with some real housing issues, some real interest in neighborhood preservation, certainly a lot of issues with uh, your bachelor and bachelorette parties causing some some ruckuses for neighbors. So it's a very complex thing, and I got into this issue to try to tease it out. You know, Airbnb and VRBO, you know, weren't really uh, as noticeable 10 years ago, 12 years ago, but it's become a bigger and bigger issue within planning. And uh, in the last five years, we've seen tremendous changes in terms of how local governments regulate this issue, try to do enforcement on this issue. And so it's just exciting. It's, it's an issue that people get fired up about, uh, for better or worse, uh, when it's at a public meeting, sometimes with me, maybe worse, but whatever. Uh, it's just an exciting issue because it has so many moving parts. <laughs> you know, you don't have to really convince people that this is something that they should care about, that they will, they will show up. Um, and so it's been great. Yeah, and you know, I can I can definitely attest to that, um, Jeff. Um, and I hope you don't mind me calling you Jeff. You know, I we're friends, right? We're here. We're friends. We're all friends. <laughs> um, so I can attest to that because we've been working in our city currently on uh, SDR ordinance, mm -hmm. emergency ordinance, and so there's a lot of moving parts to consider. You know, from you know what's allowable, you know, to how it's going to look, to the enforcement thereof. So many things that, that need to be considered. And so I think one of the struggles, as you said, for many jurisdictions is where do I start? Mm -hmm. Where do I start? What's the first thing that I should be focusing on? Um, what does the community involvement aspect look like? Uh, what does the enforcement aspect look mm -hmm. like? And what is my end result or what do I want my end result to be? Um, would you be able to kind of walk us through a little bit um, from the from the beginning towards the meat and potatoes and then the end? Sure. So I think what a lot of jurisdictions do that, that makes it difficult for them <clears throat> from the beginning is that this is an issue that people care about. And so they'll get people calling the office or writing emails to the city councilor or to whoever. And so that's usually the impetus to do something is really a lot oftentimes from the complaint side. And 
I don't discount those complaints. Those things I, I, I believe to be true, but they're really only one piece of the information you should gather in order to move into regulation. And to me, uh, you know, I went to design school for planning, so everything's a, everything's an image, so it's a triangle. The complaint side, the realities on the ground, that is one piece of the puzzle. And it's important because ultimately you want to solve those problems. You want to be responsive to the residents of your town, but it's only one piece. I'd say the second leg of that is really about understanding your short-term rental market. You know, how many are there? Where are they? Is there uh, Are there some sort of... Um, a piece that allows you to be more targeted in in regulation or enforcement when you get to that. You know, is it a certain size that's causing the problems? Is it just the location? Is it affecting certain neighborhoods more or certain renters or whatever? You need to have some understanding of what's actually happening within the short-term rental market in order to affect uh, and be nuanced in, in what you're doing. And really the third piece is your own professional expertise. You know, you as someone <laughs> in government, either in planning, uh, in code enforcement, in whatever it is, you know, have uh, views of this of your city or county that are maybe longer range, that are broader in scope. Uh, you know what the 10-year plan is. You know what also your own budget is. You know, you don't want to promise something that you, you don't have $10 million to deliver. So if you use those three inputs, you'll be able to develop uh, you know, what I would call a, a kind of planning lens or an analytical lens. There are so many moving parts to this issue. You need something to help you make choices. And that is going to be bigger than just short-term rentals, yes or no. It's going to be about housing. It's going to be about economic development. It's going to be about quality of life. But you need something so that when you say you can do this here, but not here, or this when and not then, or you know, three bedrooms or five bedrooms, you need something to justify those choices, which means you need something at a kind of higher level than just 10 people got in a room to complain about about their neighbors. So that's really the, the best way to start is to gather all that information and be able to use sort of a broader view or a longer term view in order to get yourself on the right foot as you start to make all these decisions, which if you read any short-term rental ordinance, it's a million decisions. It's all decisions. There's so many different ways to go. And, you know, you have to make those decisions to serve some sort of broader goal that can be enforceable, that is enforceable to your budget. Um, and if you don't have that kind of, of tool, that, that analytical lens, you're really going to get in a swamp super quick because there's just going to be a million choices and you're not going to really be able to justify why you did this and not this or what does this actually do. So that, that to me is actually the, the most important thing is all that legwork before you go to public comment, before you go to write an ordinance, you know, what are we really trying to, to solve for and how does this fit into the broader issues and values of your community? So Jeff, um, one, of the, one of the things that I noticed is there's so many different models of ordinances and prior to folks coming to you, let's say a jurisdiction should be realizing what exactly they want in their ordinance, Correct. Well, yes or no. I mean, <laughs> knowing exactly what you want, in some ways, if you knew exactly what you want, you wouldn't need to come to a consultant. You would you would just sure. write it down. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's like, well, I, I haven't written a lot of bans because if you want to ban short-term rentals, you don't need to hire a consultant to, to tell you how to do that. Um, I think it's more about doing some thinking and, and some internal strategizing about 
how does this issue fit into broader community conversations, broader broader goals, longer term goals, you know, community values? I mean, these are pretty nebulous terms, but that's something that uh, an outside consultant is not going to be able to to define for you. These are things that you know because you know your communities and work in your communities and live in your communities. So that side is often stuff that we that I have to work with uh, jurisdictions to kind of go back into because oftentimes they want to jump straight into, all right, is it an R1 or R2 or R2 mixed? And you're like, let's hold on. Let's kind of like back this up a little bit. What are we actually trying? What's the goal here? And, and why, right? A lot of times the why gets left out because you're like, we got to do something, we got to do it quick. But all these things, all the things in your ordinance, all the things you're prioritizing should be in service of some, some broader goal, whether that's a housing goal or a quality of life goal or a safety goal or an economic development goal, which I've worked with cities that, that are like, people just get a permit and pay your taxes and we're good. Well, that's a, that's a vision of, of what they want. Uh, and so that that's to me like uh, actually the, the hardest work and sometimes a lot of the work that needs to be done before you hire a consultant or with a consultant to help you guide you just because I can't tell you what the values your your community are. You know what the values of the community are. So I can help tease that out. But, you know, that is really important, <laughs> much more important than me telling you what the occupancy standard is across the Mountain West. Like that's not as important as what are we what are we doing what are we actually trying to to do um and that that's a harder conversation um and that's that that's why uh, i think a lot of places get stuck pretty early is everyone's pulling in a different direction there's no there's no sort of comprehensive view of why everyone's meeting and yelling at each other sure and you know i i've had the uh, pleasure of sitting through those council meetings where you have a group of folks um saying how awesome it's going to be for you know, for for revenue for the city, where you have this other group of folks that is like, hey, I, I can, uh, you know, girls be beat up in front of me on the lawn during because it's a crazy raging party, right? And in a, it's every weekend, so that's known to be the party house now, and right. it, it just becomes you have this, um, you know, council. and both those could be true, but both those could be true, right? It's true, and yeah, so that. Where do you go? Like, what do you want to do? Right? I mean, right. I've I've talked to cities that are like, this is our budget. This is what we are. We're not going to treat this as a housing issue because we've always been a, a vacation destination. It's just shifted in terms of where people are renting. So we want people to be safe. We want people to be you know decent neighbors. But like, we're not going to put in a primary residency requirement because that's that's not our community, right? And that's fine. You know, I think it's harder in some of these places where you do have some bigger conflicting um, visions or conflicting priorities. Uh, and that's ultimately on the staff and the elected officials to say, this is the vision we're going with. If you don't like it, vote me out, I guess. But like, you know, this is the vision. You know, I, I joke that if you want everyone to agree, you're in the wrong business. Uh, the, the goal is more that everyone understands why the choices have been made and they may disagree with those choices that's that's their right but they understand why it's been done and if they want to change that they can <laughs> elect new people change the ordinance you don't want to end up with a process where at the end people are like this is capricious this is arbitrary and 
those ordinances tend not to hold together. They tend to have loopholes. They tend to not be enforced very well. And that's where everyone gets doubly frustrated because they're like, we went through this whole process and the problems weren't solved. And now I don't believe anything uh, ever. And I'm going to go, you know, run for the hills. So, um, you know, that's to, to me again, like if a lot of the public side of things is about framing, you know, I've certainly worked in a lot of communities that said short-term rentals are the cause of everything. They're the reason uh, my house is expensive. The reason my wife left me They're Like, I mean, it's, it becomes the, the ultimate sort of uh, shadow play for maybe bigger conversations they don't want to have in bigger cities, <laughs> especially like new Orleans, people don't like having conversations about gentrification or displacement, but Short-term rentals make a good villain a lot of times instead of having this kind of conversation. So you as a, as a professional also need to make sure that you understand and, and, dis- and describe the limits of this conversation uh, so that people don't think that, you know, literally get ring- getting rid of the party house will solve, like, the affordability crisis in California. Like, that's not, <laughs> that's not, yeah. it's, a, yeah. it's a tiny part, it's a part, but, like, you know, people need to to have some some sense of scale, and that's on the professionals to frame the debate that way uh, to help people, you know, be in the right mindset to give good feedback that can be can be constructive. Yeah, and I think I think that's exactly where the tie-in comes in, as you mentioned, Jeff. Where it's important to know the trends, or if you will, the very fabric of your city and or county, to really understand what's happening, um, what perhaps has generated the most nuisance issues. Um, you know, when considering occupancies, uh, whether or not that's going to be feasible. Um, I agree that sometimes we tend to be, um, you know, wanting to jump in, you know, headfirst as far as let's get it all in there. But mm-hmm. sometimes getting it all in there creates a bigger issue. Um, yes. So, yes. Yeah. so it's just like, no, we got to scale it back a little bit and really dissect it and figure out what is the most important now mm-hmm. and then build from that, you know, to to get to where we need to be as far as the solutions or the end result that we want. Yeah. And also I think you got to think upstream from a lot of the problems you hear from, from individuals, which is, you know, I I read an ordinance recently that I think just passed that the, the requirements of operation for a short-term rental went from section a to section double B. Right. So they were getting as specific as possible about every possible thing. Yeah. Which fine <laughs> you know uh, that's that's one way to do it for me i think the bigger question is is there a more elegant solution maybe higher up in terms of you know uh the who what when why of 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 this industry you know we found a lot of places have been moving towards uh primary residency requirements uh as a way to build in a lot of accountability to how things are operated if this is your own personal home you could have a frat party every weekend. You probably won't. Uh, and so, you know, you, you're building in accountability higher up. So maybe you don't need to define exactly, you know, what what minute you can operate the hot tub blowers of your hot tub. You know, it, it, instead of, ten, you know, you can't operate them from 10 to 5 a.m. or whatever. You've built in accountability higher up. So you don't need to be so specific because... You've sort of taken care and care of it upstream. 
you know, if hot tubs are the biggest issue, then maybe you need to be specific about that. That's up to you. But, you know, in general, I like something a little more streamlined, a little more elegant. The more specific you get, you get on one, you're not going to be able to enforce a lot of it. You just don't have the people uh, and you shouldn't probably spend the money to, to have that many people to be out in front of, you know, every house at, at 1001, you know, tapping their watch. But then also for neighbors, especially the ones who maybe are a little more prone to calling things in, they're going to be frustrated because they say the ordinance says 10 p.m. and it's now 1002. And like, why haven't you sent a person out to like shut this hot tub down? Uh, and, you know, that doesn't give you a lot of wiggle room. Uh, as a as an enforcement person to prioritize sort of relative um, safety issues or quality of life issues you know if the ordinance says this then technically you should you, you should be enforcing it to that standard, but you can't and now everyone's frustrated and then you get into issues of like are you doing unfair enforcement are you picking on people are you just you know prioritizing the kind of nosy neighbors who will call in everything that has equity issues I mean etc 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 so if you can solve things higher up, it really just makes a lot of your your life easier uh, because it's just more elegant, it's more streamlined, it's more nuanced, even though it actually has fewer things in it, uh, which is a little paradoxical, but but <laughs> does seem to work um, in terms of, of prioritization, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, along the same lines, what um, are, have there been any ordinance types that you've run into that were a complete fail that we should, <laughs> that we should learn from. I, I think it's important for us to really understand um, how that might look so mm-hmm. that we learn from those mistakes, right? And so that we're able to take everything that you're saying as far as streamlining and not being so yeah. with the policy making. That's actually a more complex question than you think because a failure to whom and for what, right? right? So right. if you'd go to a city that has a lot of housing issues, they, you know, the housing people might say this is a huge failure, but they might have extremely good um, permit compliance, right? You might be 90% permit compliance, but a housing person might say, oh, well, it hasn't ended speculation and like all these people got kicked out for, for short-term rental flips. Yeah. Is that a success? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So it, it is a little more, this is why I say there's no boilerplate that, that yeah. you can take, right? Mm-hmm. The, there are aspects that I think a lot of cities have, def- have, especially a few years ago, defaulted to that I think are just not enforceable. Um, so number one would be day limits. Day limits are really, really, really difficult to do the enforcement on. They're very expensive to do enforcement on, and no city ever really got them right. So that's why you see a lot of places mm-hmm. moving from day limits to something like primary residence, which has a often a legal definition <laughs> um, right. and, and is verifiable you know, directly. Mm-hmm. The day limits, just because there's so many platforms and people list things across different platforms and the, the platforms themselves do not give that kind of data up. So you have to kind of do a lot of work to say, oh, no, you, we said 90 days and you're at 91. Well, you're going to have to you're going to have to prove that. And like it's just it's not those are never very successful. So as an enforcement tool, that's not very successful. Yeah, uh, I would say other things which are. Again, when you go through this process, you do want to take a stop, uh, stop and take a step back and think about how am I actually going to enforce this? And I'll give you a really good example of something that sounds great but is almost impossible to enforce, which is I've seen a number of cities say, uh, when you are doing short-term renting, you need to put 
you know, a sign in your window with the permit number and an emergency contact call or whatever. That sounds great. Everyone loves that idea. But again, how do you actually prove or disprove that you did or did not do that, right? Like, do you have to take a photo of your house with the newspaper like you're a hostage to prove that something happened on a specific day for every day that you do that? Like, could I just as a as a neighbor just call in, you know, a million times saying, oh, they don't have their sign? <laughs> How, like, where do you go from there, right? So there are things like that that just you just don't you don't have really the ability to to enforce uh or, or like it, it just doesn't add up and so there are a lot of those things but it'll be very dependent on your location you know and this is why again we have to have some sort of planning goal of this process to even know whether we succeeded in that goal uh and if you just never define a goal then you you don't really know whether you succeeded or failed which i think sometimes some places kind of like that idea because then they, there's no accountability because they didn't that you can't prove that they didn't do what they wanted to do the whole time um but just it, it, you, oh jeffrey just to let you know when you do write these ordinances, somebody will be calling and somebody in the court enforcement division will have to go out there whether we like it or not right. yeah. so is that a good use of time right is it is a good not a good use of resources time. yes uh, there's a, a wonderful term that i will share with all of you it's a, i believe a british term that I, i've picked up which is a, a curtain twitcher uh which is uh, the person on the block who's literally like always kind of peering out and like calling things in <laughs> that, that they have a, a name for that type of neighbor. And that is a curtain twitcher. And, awesome. you know, you just have those people. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you, you know, theoretically, if it's in the ordinance, you have to enforce it. Is that the yeah. best use of your time and, and resources? Probably not, I would assume. Um, but again, that's like that specificity that, makes it difficult then to to use your resources in a way that actually is maybe more meaningful than just making sure they have this this sign out when it's I'm, i don't yeah. know if that adds that much to, to the quality of life necessarily you know you're you're that's that's so true because going back to even the enforcement of it as as um you know managing enforcement teams myself and pete that's kind of a challenge that we have is you know when we have strs and you do have an ordinance we need very clear language to allow our staff to be able to go out and enforce effectively otherwise we're in this gray area that no one likes to be in right and then we have to figure out is it me is it police is it fire and that's the other thing to consider there's so many other departments that are involved with strs that also will need some sort of regulation for them as to what their role is so it, it really it really has a lot of hands right as far as you know who's going to do policing who's going to do fire what's right. that going to look like um so outside of the little nuances with you know the the time frames as you were talking about right the parking or or the time limits and the visitor limits there's this whole broad um, slew of, of other things that are really important in the enforcement and the and the pretty you know safe and successful execution of an STR. Um, so Jeff, for those of us that are watching the show today, can you go into some of the SDR uh, lingo? For example, you mentioned, um, you know, owner-occupied, so not hosted, non-hosted. What do those things mean? <laughs> yeah, so this is something that I've I've really come around to in the last, you know, probably year 
is uh, of, of a useful tip if anyone is developing these types of ordinances is it sounds very elementary school, but make a vocab list, even if it's unique to your town, yeah. uh, because there are so many very, very similar sounding terms or similar sounding concepts that actually are quite different. So the big difference you'll see when you pull up an Airbnb or a VRBO is between a whole home rental and a partial home rental. So a whole home rental means you as the guest control the entire house or unit. Um, that doesn't mean that someone doesn't normally live there. That just means that you as a guest control that whole unit. A partial home would be you're renting out a bedroom, you're renting out a couch. Someone who normally lives there is there. Um, that's one of the big uh uh, dividers you can do when you pull up Airbnb and look at the listings. For the most part, the the renting out a bedroom, renting out a couch is a very, very small percentage of the market. Um, that is not what people, it's not really that common. Um, I've never seen it in any location be more than maybe eight to 10% of all the listings. So you are really talking about this these whole home rentals. Within that, some of those are going to be owner occupied, which means it is their primary residence. They're going to live there. Probably their stuff is there. Like maybe they're there some parts of the year. Maybe they leave for a couple of weeks. Maybe they're willing to weave for a couple of weeks if the price is right. Um, and that's been going on for a really long time. The subset that I think is really gets a lot of press are the ones that are non owner occupied, which are <laughs> investment properties, um, you know, owned by LLCs sometimes, owned by people who might have 30, might have be international, might not live in your community. Those are, you know, essentially essentially a kind of, you know, hotel. Uh, it's, a, it's a much more commercial enterprise. They're run much more commercially, even if they're not zoned for that or they don't follow ADA compliance or any of these other commercial things. Um, but they're operated as a, as a kind of commercial business. Um, hosted versus non-hosted is, is, again, that same thing. Hosted means someone is on the property. Uh, whether that's the uh, owner or the tenant or uh, a, a random guy, uh, someone is there to to kind of be be on the scene. Uh, Non-hosted, which is again most listings you'll see, are just here's the here's the code. You know, this is your house for the for the weekend. Um, and so within that, like I said, it's a it's it can be a real gray area. You know, I think a big trend related to how complicated and how sort of uncut and dry everything is, is I've seen a lot of places more recently try to separate out within short-term rentals the idea of different sort of uh, impacts. So there are these non-resident occupied, non-owner occupied units. A lot of places are kind of asking this question of what is a bed and breakfast in the 21st century? And do we need to create a new category or merge a new category into a, a more traditional bed and breakfast zoning or code enforcement or, and all these other things to account for the fact that these have these types of units have a different impact than I, Jeffrey Goodman, renting out this house for two weeks or a bedroom, you know? And so that didn't really happen a couple years ago. A lot of places were just like, if it's on Airbnb, it's a short-term rental and we're going to let you do kind of whatever you want. Now I think people are, are getting a little savvier to the, the disparate impacts between these all these types of uses and are trying to 
you know, separate out some of the ones that are maybe a little bit more commercial style and say, you need to actually do a little bit more uh, commercial style, uh, you know, retrofitting of the property, or even it's just the permits are more expensive because we think there's less accountability. So we're going to have to do more, more enforcement. You're going to have to pay for that versus someone who's renting out their house where we're like, they're probably not going to be uh, a nuisance. So being more nuanced like that, considering that is something that I think places are doing more and more. Also, you don't want to create an invalid category. So a lot of places, especially in like 2017, created these short-term rental categories that like now no one will ever get a bed and breakfast license. Why would you do that when you could do a short-term rental and like have fewer rules and make more money? So I I think places are getting savvier about fitting these things into the, into proper categories for their impacts. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, um, VROs have actually, the first online platform um, was out in 1995. So they've been around for a very long time. And it's only until recently that they've actually become, you know, one of those things that now need to be regulated in in various cities across the nation. Um, In fact, I remember a movie, um, The Holiday, Sure. With, uh, Queen Latifah, right? Where she kind of traveled abroad and went to like a rental and back and forth. Yeah. And, it, and it was one of those kind of SDR situations. So and they've uh, been around forever. I mean, like, yeah. you know, it's not like Airbnb invented this concept. Right. I think it's just the scale is certainly much, much larger than it was. And I think you also have kind of actors in it who are, wouldn't have been in that kind of uh, home swap era the couch surfing era you know you now have some pretty large investors um or or local investors uh and you know they're going to be running things in a different way than i'm (laughs) i'm traveling to to england for christmas or whatever Um, so i'll stay at someone's house so i I think they have been the the segment that has been i think the the most troublesome or the most Mm -hmm. worrisome for a lot of people just because they're not as based in the community, their their interests are not necessarily aligned beyond maximizing their profit. Yeah. Um, and so, so sometimes they're not the best neighbors, I guess we can. Exactly. We can and you know, you, you actually touched on something that I think is one of the biggest concerns with um, these short-term rentals is that um, the concern is obviously the housing. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? These investors mm-hmm. are going to come in. They're going to come into our neighborhoods where we want to grow families. And now mm-hmm. we have all these, you know, rotunda of, of visitors coming through. And, you know, right. I think back uh, in June, Pete and I had the pleasure of doing a or participating in a um, planning strategic meeting in Kissimmee, Florida. And mm-hmm. uh, we had a rental that we um, obtained for the purposes of our um, planning session. And I can tell you that every every unit, every house that was surrounding us was a short-term rental, every mm-hmm. single one. And, you know, um, some of them were, were fine. Everyone was, you know, minding their errors and, sure. and within hours, but there was this one that was going on three in the morning, three yeah. in the morning. And, and we were just like, wow, okay, we're getting a first chance. Like, these are, these are code enforcers who you're talking to. So we're right. the, Uh, okay we get it we see what's going on you know while some of them are following the rules others are not so much and and you know 
while I was driving to this location, my Uber driver actually told me, you know what, these are all being built mm-hmm. and bought out by investors. Mm-hmm. It turned into short-term rentals. And I was like, wow, that's that's a massive amount of the market in that particular area that's going <laughs> into short-term rentals. Yeah, the housing side, I think, is really fascinating. And again, it's going to be very dependent on uh, your local housing market. Uh, but... You know, I guess I'll, I'll do this. I'll do a pump up speech for urban planners uh, about this issue, issue, which is planners don't have a lot of control over national and international finance. Uh, we don't have a lot of control over uh, mortgage rates or what the Fed does or the, the global economy. This short term rentals is one of the few pieces of the, the housing market that local governments actually have tremendous control over. And you know, again, I'm not saying that this is always appropriate for every place, but something to consider is the cost of losing a unit of long-term housing. You're never going to make that back up <laughs> in order to build a new unit, right? And so I think there are a lot of places that have very tight housing markets or have very specific housing uh, needs that are saying, yes, like we need to, you know, we like tourism, but also there are populations or, or units that we really just need to protect because that is a community value we have is being able to support, you know, especially in smaller towns, an elementary school or a veterinarian or a hardware store, you know, and we can't do that just on tourists. Yeah. So, uh, or you just have in a, in, a, in a more urban place like here in New Orleans, the minimum wage is 725. There's no way anyone making that can compete with mm-hmm. the short-term rental income, right? So you need another kind of protection if that's a value to use to, is to protect it. And, you know, that is, I guess I will say this about economic impact statements. A lot of times you'll see uh, economic reports prepared by short-term rental hosts or, or, or trade groups or Airbnb itself. And they don't include the value generated by just a long-term tenant. And it's not just free money. I guess I I need to be very clear. Short-term renting is not just free money. You know, there is a cost associated with not having a long-term tenant. And we've seen in places that have extremely tight markets, uh, Colorado ski towns especially, having to get very creative about uh, providing long-term housing uh, just so they have workers to man the ski lifts and cook the food and, and do all these things because if they did not get creative, there just wouldn't be a place for them to be right. or they'd have to commute two hours through the mountains or whatever. So, you know, again, depending on what your your housing needs are, you know, you might need to stage certain kinds of interventions in order to, to prevent that kind of speculation. Um, you know, we've seen that. I think uh, Durango, Colorado is a good example of a place that said, uh, they have a university there, and they're they're pretty r- remote from a lot of other places. We're going to say this area around the university, which is mostly student housing, we're just not going to offer permits in that because we want to make sure that the students have access to, to housing because they don't have a lot of other choices. Some other people have choices. People in that kind of situation just don't, and that's a regulatory choice to, to you know, have a ban in that neighborhood. Um <laughs> in order to to uphold that value of students need a place to live. So, again, that's why you need to 
think about some of these other kinds of goals, you know, beyond just sort of solving the problems of trash and, and loud yeah. parties, you know, and, and make a value statement about it. You know, a place like Kissimmee in Florida has some preemption, but a place like Kissimmee is very famous for being a touristy place. They right. run ads. I've seen them on TV all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So they've made a, a, a statement that that's sort of the, the way they're going to do. And people either right. accept or don't, but they've made that statement. I think some places get into trouble where they try to kind of play every side up and never really make a real statement. And yeah. then you get kind of nothing, you get mush. Right. Um, and you know what? I, I, um, I like that you talked a little bit about, you know, setting um, some regulations as far as interventions, right? So the, the one intervention that you mentioned was, for example, you know, you're in a college town or a college city and you need that housing for those college students. So being able to say, okay, in, in these area, mm-hmm. uh, these areas, you know, 30 radius block, whatever, right? We're going to say no permits on STRs. Um, I think in addition to that, for example, in California, we we have been succumbed a lot of the times to fires in different areas um, of our state. And that is another high concern is, you know, uh, rentals in the wildland, uh, wildland urban interface areas or what we call the WUI mm-hmm. to become an issue because we yep. want to make sure that when, you know, we, we have these rentals, if folks are behaving badly or not being cautious, that it could have the potential of creating an issue such as a fire. So, yep. um being able to have those interventions to say, okay, in the WUI, we're not going to allow, for example, rentals, or if we do allow them, they may be only uh, allowed with a hosted, meaning someone on site, perhaps, um, that can help regulate. So um, those are some some really good points to bring up. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I had to bring this up, but as a, as a New Orleans resident, I think it's important, which is also about post-disaster recovery, you know, one of the big concerns, and we've seen it here in New Orleans after Katrina, we saw it in Puerto Rico after some of their hurricanes, uh, places like the Virgin Islands after their hurricanes, uh, is really about who who get, has the resources to build back and what happens to some of that property. And, uh, you know, sadly, in some of these uh, places that are very beautiful, that, that uh, maybe had a small tourism market, you know, you have people who are rebuilding homes, but they're not building homes for the people who used to live there. They're building homes ultimately to be uh, vacation homes or second homes or or short-term rentals. And those are, again, kind of policy choices about about prioritization. That, again, is a huge, huge, huge topic and a very complicated one and a very passionate one, I think, for a lot of people. But it's something that, you know, we have to think about is that is, is some of that kind of speculation um, and what that does to resiliency efforts, um, it, it's complicated, but I think it's, you know, you have to bring it up. You have to talk about it, it or else after a disaster or if, or if insurance changes how they're going to, to do insurance, um, you know, people are going to be really um, dispossessed, I think, of, of their, uh, their communities um, because of the, the amount of money that you can make from, from uh, the second home market. That's a tough one. That's a difficult one. That's a downer one, but it's true. Yeah. Like it, it can get really, really thorny really quick. Right. You know, it really is. Oh, 
So go ahead, Pete. Go ahead. Okay. okay. So Jeffrey, as a consultant, is there, you know, you come in sometimes, do you have to redo someone's ordinance because they completely messed it up? And if yes. so, <laughs> what, what is actually some of the things that you would say, hey, this is something that many communities did not look at when they did the ordinance. And now I'm here having to reevaluate and, and rewrite it. Yeah, I would say, you know, something that came up again is a lot of times you'll see people reinventing the wheel which is they'll invent a whole category of short-term rentals. And you're like, do you have a bed and breakfast ordinance? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, what does it say you have to do? And they're like, X, Y, Z. And it's like, well, you have to do X, Y in this category. Like, is Z important? Because if not, maybe we can, you know, do something here. So there's a lot of, of people who uh, <laughs> took this as like a, a, a siloed issue. I guess that's the biggest thing. It's a lot of times it's, it's it, ordinances read like the 10 biggest complainers and one short-term rental host got in a room and just threw out ideas and they wrote them all down and like that was it and so you know a lot of what I, what I end up doing is you know going through and and asking you know what what is the goal of this what are we really trying to 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 do and your answer shouldn't be you know parking your answer needs to be maybe something a little grander than that and then once we have those criteria, we can actually go through the ordinance and evaluate, does this actually uphold the goal? I mean, you talked about goals <laughs> goals and, and, and failures to meet goals. If they don't set the goal, if they don't have a goal, then you, you really need to often do a lot of rewriting because it, it's, not, it, it's just a bunch of words. Um, until people are a little bit more explicit about what they want to see, what their budget is often, uh, you know, how many people do they have on staff? Uh, you know, you can write the, a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of, of code and then you go to, to the people and they're like, oh, we have, you know, gym. And you're like, well, you need 10 gyms uh, to do this. Like that's, uh, that, that's not good either. That's not a good use of, of, of uh, code. So yeah, I'd say a lot of it is just, <laughs> How do we make sure that this can be as elegant, as as easy to permit, as easy to enforce as possible, while still upholding the community values, the community goals that this issue fits into? Um, and that sounds very elementary, but people really do skip all those steps, or they go, you know, and look at, oh, we pulled up four uh, four ordinances and just kind of copied and pasted from those, and you look at the ordinances and it's like. Oh, you're you're pulling things from San Francisco and Berlin, and uh, you know then the next town over, and you're like, I think these places had different budgets, different priorities, different contexts, different markets. You know, some things you can port over. You know, a, a smoke detector is a smoke detector, but a lot of the other things, it's how do we make sure that it is as nuanced as possible for for the context of of your community, and that's not going to be the same of San Francisco and probably uh, not even the same of maybe other places in your county or the county itself. So <laughs> there is a little bit of that kind of um, uh, resettling uh, uh, of just trying to make things uh, make, make more coherent sense uh, so that when you do go to a public meeting, again, people aren't trying to like pull at all the threads and it just totally un unravels immediately. Um, we don't want that. No, no, no. 
Yeah, yeah, you're you're exactly right because usually when you go to those public meetings, if you haven't already done the legwork, that's usually when everyone makes pie charts and percentages <laughs> and <line laughs> charts, right? And, right? and they're dissecting the heck out of that, you know, ordinance because they're trying to understand, wait a minute, you know, why is this here? Why is that there? Let's throw this out. Let's throw that out. Or let's add this in and it, it becomes... Why is this three bedrooms and not four bedrooms? Because I have a four bedroom place and I'm a great host. Right. I'm the best host ever. Yeah. You know, no one goes to these public meetings and is like, I'm a terrible host. I don't care about any of the rules. I'm not going to pay my taxes. See you all yeah. later. Like, no one goes to that. You're only going to find people who right. are going to say they're good. Yeah. But you're going to find a lot of people who are, there's so many different uses of short-term rentals and so many different kinds of users that you can either find or imagine someone who's always going to, like, break the rules, whatever rules you've set. Yeah. And... <laughs> You have to be able to defend why that person cannot do whatever it is they want to do, and it'll be anything, you right. know. And you, and oftentimes it's hard to do that. And then in the public meeting, you know, you have someone, you know, the someone at the um, I'll throw the city councilors under the bus, you know, will say like, oh well, that guy's great. I know that guy. Like, change the rules so that he can do what he wants. And now your whole thing's falling apart. Right. right. You're like, we were doing so good. And now we yeah. just, you know, a sharp turn. <laughs> yeah. So um, get, getting back to your main points. Um, so you you explain, Jeff, that it's important for us to have a goal. Right. Mm -hmm. What is it that we're trying to accomplish? What is our end solution? So how are we going to get from the goal to the end solution? Then you also mentioned it's important for us to look at the very fabric of our our cities, our jurisdictions. So anything that's trending, any complaints that are trending, the most common violations or complaints that you're getting, response times, that the departments that it's going to take to respond, fire, police, building, code, whatever it may be, planning, are you going to have a STR permit or are you going to have a minor use permit or a larger use permit right, or a major use permit? Are you going to go through a conditional use process? Are, are only some of them going to go through a conditional use process based on their size or their zoning or, you know, whatever yeah. you want? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then once you've kind of had those ideas and, and mapped them out on a paper or, or white paper um, planning, then contact the professionals, in this case, Jeff. So, Jeff, if I were to contact you, what walk me through the conversation that you and I would be having, um, you know, me with Granica saying, hey, Jeff, help. <laughs> yeah. I, I need you to guide me through this. So what what I would do is, you know, Granicus has access to a tremendous amount of data from all the, you know, that that it creates um, based off of all the listings. And we're able to really give you an insight into the housing, not into the housing, to the short-term rental market. So what type of buildings are these things in? Where are they located? Uh, what are they charging on average for price? Um, you know, are they whole home or partial home? Even some aspects of, of their usage, you know, we would be able to to start with that kind of data. And that's that's good. That's the rare hard data that uh, in this industry that we can start off and say, okay, this is what this marketplace looks like. We even have historic data so we can say this is the, the trend line we see within <coughs> within the short-term rental industry. So that that's data that I can bring to the table to help us understand what is the reality within that that industry on the ground there. You guys would come with probably a lot of uh, information about uh, the the sort of on the ground feeling from neighbors, uh, maybe even hosts, sometimes even bed and breakfast uh, owners of <laughs> what, what are people feeling on the ground? Does that 
correlate with the data? Do we just have people who are have you know there's two short-term rentals that are causing all these problems and all these other ones that are perfectly fine? That totally changes your perception of what you need you need to do. So we start with those two things, and then again, I I basically ask you the, the question I've been I've been you know soliloquying over is which is what are some of these broader goals with you know and, and issues within the community that you know we want to slot short-term rentals uh, into or under, and sometimes that is kind of a, a an aside question to a planning professional or a code enforcement professional of you know, what is the political pressure telling you to do? And like left to your druthers, what would you want to do? Um, and often those are not the same thing. Uh, but, you know, using some of these things to try to get at this question of, okay, we see the reality, uh, the multiple realities on the ground. How are we going to develop <clears throat> a statement of, uh, of a goal or a lens that's what's going to move us from this stage to the next stage. And that takes that takes some work. Once we get past that stage, we can now start to make all those choices. And I'm able to have a million code snippets and, and assemble something together that does all the things we want it to do. To do. But I think, as, as you guys know, as I think actually probably a lot of people watching know, if you read 10 short-term rental ordinances, you're just like, oh my goodness, there's every possible direction. So, yeah. you know, a lot of what I end up doing is really that first part of how do we present data? How do we present complaints? How do we think about the internal arrangement of, of uh, licensing or permitting and then enforcement? How do we think about budgeting, both short-term and long-term and taxation? You know, how do we kind of get all that pointing in one direction? Then you know, really the step from there to, to an ordinance is so much simpler and, and you know, so much faster. Um, and it, it can change, but, uh, you know, especially as you go into public comments and again, depending on how you frame that vote, but all that work at the beginning, it really makes it so much simpler. I'm very proud of, I think, the last four or five ordinances I wrote passed unanimously. And that's because, uh, you know, <laughs> You know, that's because we've gone through the process of explaining yeah. why the things that are the way they are. Uh, and so you don't get curveballs at the last meeting. You don't get curveballs at the third reading of something. Um, you know, and you do have people complain. You have people say it's not fair. But again, everyone understands because you've gone through a really robust process of laying out the groundwork for a vision and filling in the details of that vision. And that, that has somehow surprisingly proven more effective than, you know, just getting 10 people in a room and having them kind of yeah. complain. <laughs> now, Jeffrey, I had a quick question for you. In, in your 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 snippets of ordinances, um, do since this is a code enforcement platform, do you ever see some of the ordinances include like a cost recovery tool and in, in some of them when it comes to, you know, uh, a cost for service or mm -hmm. any of those things, do you see any of those specifically for short-term rentals? Yeah, so you know the the main tool that obviously a lot of places use is is about uh, a hotel motel tax, right? Mm -hmm. Which it can be very different depending on your your state or even your county. Um, <laughs> I do see a lot of things. You know, you want to give people the ability to to do right, but certainly a lot of places have fines uh, as a a pretty active way of ensuring um, compliance. And sometimes that's more of a threat, to be honest, mm -hmm. that, you know, very few people get 
the absolute maximum fine. Um, <laughs> you almost universally have some sort of permit fee as a, a way to just pay for the um, cost of, per of processing something. Um, but I do think, you know, again, having different categories for different types of, of users um, does allow you to maybe change some of the fines and some of the fees to better reflect the cost of permitting and enforcement. And, you know, sometimes it's just criminally low. Uh, I, uh, there's a very, very large Texas city that their permit fee is $50 lifetime. Uh, wow. That's not going to work. <laughs> right? Wow. You know, uh, enforcement costs money. This, I'm sure this is the theme of your show and good enforcement costs more. And so, you know, you don't want to rely on fines because that gives you an incentive to be maybe overly harsh. So you do want to make sure that, that permits are priced uh, competitively, let's say. And I'd say the average right now in America is moving closer to 500 than, you know, maybe 250, which is where it was a couple years ago. Uh, I've heard of, um, I think Atlantic City is now closer to 1,800 for certain permits. Uh, New Orleans is over 1,000 for certain permits. So, you know, you can, again, do the math uh, based off of data maybe Granicus supplies to say, okay, if the permits are $500 and we have 300, uh, you know, units, we can multiply across and get a sense even just from the permitting side of what maybe a budget is. And you look at that and you go, well, that doesn't, that's a quarter FTE. Okay, well, then that's going to be a quarter. If you start getting it's like, oh, that's, you know, we're bringing in eight FTE for uh, just permitting, like, we got a big, we got a big thing. We got to probably maybe hire some people. So you do have some of that <laughs> guiding you perhaps about the level of your own budgeting. And then again, you don't want to rely on fines as like a budgeting tool, um, right. but I've seen yeah. it. I mean, you can, yeah. you, you, you can do it, but I, I don't think it's the best, the best option. No. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with you on that as well. Um, but I think it goes back to that, that comment that we, we made earlier about either having it a standalone permit or a major or minor, because as we know, most major use permits are pretty hunkadory as far as how much they cost. I mean, their fees are pretty substantial yeah. versus a minor. Um, so if you develop a just regular STR permit, then that's where you can have a little bit more bandwidth as to what you decide that permit fee is going to be. And again, looking at what's trending, as, as was mentioned here, you know, anywhere I've seen to myself from the 200s all the way up to, you know, a thousand, depending on obviously the makeup of the city, you know, what's going on, the response time, et cetera. Um, but I, I would agree that, um, it would be a best a best look to look yeah. at the other the other group that actually you should fold in if you're going to talk about cost recovery is the uh, your local assessor. So different mm -hmm. places have had their assessors say, if you get a short term rental permit, we're we're going to treat that as an income stream in, mm -hmm. in relation to your value of your home, mm -hmm. and so now the assessment is maybe going up. Now that can be good or bad. Um, that can be good and obviously assessing up, they're going to pay more in property taxes. It can be bad in that uh, if you have places with a lot of, of uh, flipping, everyone in that neighborhood now has new set of comps yeah. uh, based off of short-term rental income, not, not long-term rental income. And so that can actually drive up property rates for 
people who are not in this industry. And again, a lot of that has to do with how the assessor works in, in state law. Um, but it's, you know, it's not something we talked about, you know, maybe two or three years ago, but assessors and how they choose to do things uh, really do have a tremendous impact. The other side of that is if you do have something like a primary residency, if you get someone with primary residency fraud, often that means they have to give back their homestead exemption of, you know, $50,000 off their property value. They got to, you know, they don't get all the same breaks. And we've seen places even say short-term rentals are going to be assessed like their commercial property, not like their residential yeah. property. Um, in the same way that often a bed and breakfast is assessed like a commercial property. And so that starts to add up quite a, quite a bit um, just in terms of the amount of, um, the amount of value in your city uh, uh, in those housing assessments can mean actually a pretty big jump. Now, there's a lot of other effects on that, but it's it's something that people didn't even talk about in this industry two years ago, uh, and is becoming a lot more a lot more common just because of the the amount of money you can you can put on the books just by simple changes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, before we wrap up the day, could you speak a little bit on um, some examples of permit revocation? So, what would constitute, or what you have seen from various jurisdictions that they've used to revoke a STR if it's not in compliance? Yeah. So, <laughs> I've seen a lot of places start to divide things between kind of permitting violations and then operational violations. Hmm. And with operational violations, a lot of it is about you know, giving some people uh, uh, ways to, to get right, you know, not revoking it on the first violation, yeah. but, you know, giving people some process to, you know, maybe it's a three strikes, maybe it's, there's some, you know, mediation, like, you know, there's a lot of different ways. Uh, that's more about just mitigating this quality of life. A lot of places now, though, are saying, on these licensing violations, which include operating outside the scale of your permit, so if you're supposed to have three bedrooms and five people and you're advertising five bedrooms and 50 people, that's no good. Uh, not having a permit at all, not paying your taxes, um, uh, the advertisement in any way that is not true to your permit, those are not three strikes and you're out. Those are one strike and you're done, right? Um, oh, wow. And okay. basically saying like, you know, we'll give people a lot of times runways from when an ordinance is passed until enforcement starts to get allow people to come in and get right and install the smoke detectors. But outside of that, you know, if I operate an illegal bar in my house, I don't get three strikes usually. I don't, that's just not, that's not a thing, right? right. Um, so, you know, people, uh, local governments treating it much more seriously about some of these licensing things um, and certainly paying taxes. And so, again, different jurisdictions will have different requirements. Sometimes you have to be kind of caught in the act. Um, other places just say, you know, we we can show you proof of your advertisement, right? We have this screenshot. It's a dated and notarized screenshot from a specific time and specific place. This is your house. You know, this <laughs> you're you know that's that's the end of it. And then I think the the innovation on top of that would be to say, um, you know. You can have cooling off periods, basically, where just like we will not issue you a permit if you've had a permit revoked in the last 12 months. Right. Um, and a lot of places do that also just so like, you know, I don't want to get my third violation on December 28th and then just like wait a day and then come in and yeah. get a new permit and like, you know, bet on code enforcement taking a while to get back to me. Um, 
so I've seen a lot of places start to, to ask that when you go to permit renewal too, of just like, what's the, give us a record of the calls for service, like go to the sheriff and, and get the calls for service. And if it's over a certain number, we think that's a pattern. Even if you didn't even get all the violations necessarily, um, we think that's a pattern and we're going to maybe put some sort of contingency on, on your permit or make you go through a different process or just not give you one. So uh, I would say that's a, it's a useful division because the permitting stuff you can do from your desk, right? Yeah. It's not sending out a code enforcement guy. That's not checking all these boxes on a clipboard while you're walking through the home. The permitting side you can do from your desk. You can see if they're advertising illegally. You can see if the numbers aren't correct, um, you know, in terms of their advertisement versus what their permit says. That's the cheaper way to do enforcement uh, because it is going to catch people, again, sort of upstream. By the time it gets to the the noise complaint at 2 a.m., you know, you've missed a lot of opportunities maybe to to deal with it. And that, that becomes expensive because you got to send someone or a sheriff or whoever it is uh, and then go through that process. So if you can prioritize the, the permitting enforcement, you ensure that the people in your system are the people who want to be in the system. Right. The people who, who don't want to get a permit should not be in this industry. Uh, and they're often the ones who have guest issues because they have demonstrated they are not willing to do, you know, what, what hopefully is a pretty basic thing to come into your office and get, get a single piece of paper. So that, that can solve a lot of your quality of life issues. If you focus on the, on the permitting side, especially as you roll out a new system. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, you know, um, Jeff, I just got to say, you know, that I'm, I'm so grateful for the conversation this morning because it's a lot of really good information and it just kind of broke it down to everyone as to what really goes into kind of getting your starting point of getting these ordinances together. So I want to thank you for your time all the way from New Orleans. And in addition to that, in addition to that, I know my colleague here, Pete, will be at the um, California Association of Code Enforcement's annual conference. And Pete, you want to talk a little bit about the class there? Sure. There's a class uh, by Ulrich. Um, Ulrich, uh, I forgot it. Bisner. I always get his Inzer. name. It's a Bisner. good, yes. good Danish name. Yes. yes. So he will uh, have a class um, at the uh, California Association uh, Conference. Uh, it's and uh, um, speaking on it in regards to the ban mechanism. So I belong to a city that. Um, had a complete ban and how we enforced and then different types of enforcement tools that we use, including uh, the Granicus software, which is excellent. Also, if um, for you uh, folks that haven't signed up for the ACE conference, uh, it's in uh, Glendale, Arizona this year, uh, please feel free to sign up. You can go to ace1.org. It's available, um, still some openings. So if you'd like to see what's going on in the nationwide in code enforcement, please feel free to join us. I think Granicus might be a sponsor there as well. Probably. So, um, Granicus is a sponsor everywhere. Uh, I should just get a tattoo right here. But, <laughs> but anyways, well, thank you, Jeffrey, for um, having uh, joining us today. It's, it's mm -hmm. been a pleasure. It's great information. I know we can talk about this for hours on end. Or ever. And never ends. Yes. Yep. Yes. My <laughs> wife is a very patient woman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like uh, the you know the movie with the uh, with the sorcerer. You know, on Marvel, he has there's so many possibilities. Oh yeah. Well, with that, thank you everybody for joining us today and we, uh, we hope you enjoyed it and we will see you next week. All right. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Take care.